pub for some drinks trivia and social history with absolutely no tasty notes i'm tim and i'm joined by my drinking buddy o'leary um i was gonna do the opening sound effects and i realized i'd already opened my can um, <laughs> which, um you often provide that sound effect when it's unwanted today yes. it is wanted and i don't have it so and what are we serving <laughs> i i can't even provide it whether you want it or not today because I'm a bit under the weather, I'm on antibiotics, <laughs> so my cans of beer and cider that I've got in the fridge for this episode will not be drunk. Mm-hmm. So it's another cup of tea for me this week. Shock horror. I was relying on you for this sound effect. but um... I could try and do some, is it ASMR when you make it up yourself? It's not, is it? <laughs> I could just do it with my mouth. Oh God, no. let's, let's, let's not go there. <laughs> I'm going to you know, extract that as a soundbite and just add it onto the end of the episode in case anyone needs it. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about cans. Which ones? Um, I'm sure I've got that joke peppered throughout my notes somewhere. Uh, I have got a can, uh, just so you know what I'm drinking, and I decided to pick the most ironic one that I could. So this beer is actually called That's My Bag, Baby. <laughs> My can is my bag. Um, okay. It's from Horsforth Brewery, which is uh, near Leeds, and it's a double dry hopped IPA. Nice. There you go. But yes, that's my bag, baby can. All right, should we start off with some origins? We've actually got to go to food first. Oh, um, God. I Actually, I've just had lunch, so that's okay. I didn't want to be hungry. I don't think you'd be hungry for any of the stuff that came in cans no. in the um, oh god of course in the nineteenth yeah. century anyway. Oh god, yeah. Okay, I'm ready for this. Okay, Let's so go. the tin canning <laughs> process was conceived by a Frenchman, uh, Philippe de Girard, who got a British merchant Peter Durand to patent his idea in 1810. The the canning concept was actually, first of all, based on um, food preservation work in glass containers the year before, and that was by French inventor Nicolas Appert. And that was because Napoleon had put out um, a call, a 12,000 franc reward for anyone who could come up with a preservation method for food for use with the French military. So he was like, obviously we need food to stay fresh, contain its uh, vitamins. And um, so Appert's method was basically half cook the food, put it in glass bottles, glass containers, and then um, heat it up. And that would kind of get rid of the bacteria in the air and then you could seal it up. Um, And then the British kind of went, well, why don't we just do that with cans? Because they're less likely to break um, so yeah, that's where that came from. But Durand, um, the British merchant, didn't really pursue food uh, canning, and then in 1812 sold his patent to two other Englishmen, Brian Donkin and John Hall, who refined the process and the product, and they set up the world the world's first commercial canning factory 
on Southwark Park Road. Just yeah. my neighbourhood. How many times have I said, oh, in my neighbourhood? In my hood. Yeah, it's <laughs> Southwark is basically the centre of the world uh, in London, at least when it comes to drinks. Uh, by 1813, they were producing their first in, uh, tin can goods for the Royal Navy. And by 1820, tin canisters were being used for gunpowder, for seeds, for turpentine, for all sorts of things. Originally, they were sealed and soldered with a tin lead alloy, uh, which led to lead poisoning. <laughs> so it was mostly smart, but not smart enough. <laughs> Uh, aside from lead poisoning, obviously there are some ideal things uh, that, that cans provide for us. Steel cans. Uh, they're stronger than cartons or plastic. They're less fragile than glass. They protect the product when it's being moved, prevent leakage, spillage. Uh, also reduce the need for secondary packaging. Uh, steel and aluminium packaging offer 100% barrier protection against light, water, air, and metal cans without resealable closures are the most tamper evident of all packaging materials. Steel cans will preserve and protect things from light, from oxidation, from extreme temperature and contamination. They safeguard the flavour, as long as they're coated, uh, appearance and quality from factory. Food and drink packed in steel cans has the equivalent vitamin content to freshly prepared food without needing preserving agents. And so they also extend the product's shelf life, meaning that long, they have longer sell-by and use-by dates, reducing waste. As an ambient packaging, uh, they don't require cooling in the supply chain, uh, which simplifies things like storage and other logistics. It saves energy. And at the same time, steel's relatively high thermal conductivity means that canned drinks chill much more rapidly and easily than those in glass or plastic bottles. So, in other words, it's a really good invention. <laughs> it's superior. Mm -hmm. It is. It's super. Uh, drink cans are generally made from um, aluminium, which is 75% of worldwide production, or tin-plated steel, which is 25% of the production. And worldwide production for all drink cans is somewhere around 370 billion cans per year. It's uh, a lot of cans. It is a lot of cans. I've got a bit here which I think probably leads on to your section, um, but I'll say it quickly. So the uh, the first <laughs> commercial beer available um, was 1935 in Richmond, Virginia, I think. And not long mm -hmm. after that, sodas uh, with their higher acidity and somewhat higher pressures were available in cans. Um, so the key development off the back of that was this interior lining uh, typically plastic or sometimes a waxy substance that help keep the flavour from being ruined by chemical reactions with the metal. So that mostly came off the back of sodas, um, although beers are acidic, I have something on that later on. Um, and another, I think, thing that kicked off around that time is because prohibition in the US ended in 1933. And so, you know, we're looking at two years later, the explosion of this uh, beer in cans, and I think that's probably one of the reasons for it as well. But I don't want to go too far into your territory, so shall I hand over to you? Yes, absolutely. Um, I am going to speak about the American stuff in a bit. Um, particularly, it's quite funny that you mentioned Richmond, Virginia, but I will come to that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to stay in the UK first. I'm actually going to stay in Wales. I'm going to stay in South Wales. Shocker. Um, <clears throat> Llanelli. Um, so it's from the Vale in Voile Brewery, based on Llanelli, as I've said. Uh, so it did 
backs to the 1800s. Uh, so the founder, David John, he owned an iron and a tin plate work um, around Llanelli. And whilst owning those works, he wanted to make a bit of extra money. So he also bought the King's Head pub, which is opposite his house um, in Vailing Boyle. Um, it was no ordinary pub, but it was also an important coaching inn. And it also at the time had a more worrying feature. Alongside the building, sticking out into the road was a tall gate, which became obviously a bit of a red, red rag to the angry bulls when uh, the Rebecca riots in 1839 to 1843 happened. Uh, so the hard-pressed tenant farmers kind of bitterly resented the road charges on their wagons and their animals. And when they rampaged through Carmarthenshire, they destroyed all the tall gates, including this one. Uh, feeling was running high against the authorities, so David decided to abandon the king and renamed his tavern the Union Inn. Um, like most pubs at the time, the Union Inn brewed its own beer. This proved very popular and soon enough, Valenvoil ales were started to be sold at other houses. And as that demand increased, he realised, oh, I need a brewery. So in 1878, opposite the pub, in the grounds of his house, he built a stone brewery. And that's still there today, and it's still where they brew their beer today. Uh, the brewery became a focal point of the community, uh, it, as well as employing about 50 people. They tried their best to just provide as many services and opportunities and facilities to the community as well. For example, um, farmers on brewing day would come from miles around um, for the sog, the spent grains from the mash tun to feed their animals. Um, so it would be an often sight to see the farmers' carts waiting their turn on the roads to be uh, served their, their cattle feed. Um, then through the 1900s, the brewery built up trade throughout the old counties of Carmarthen, Cardigan and Pembroke. Um, they bought pubs as well as and when they came available. So he had quite the company going in the 1900s. Uh, that's when he de decided to retire. Uh, but he passed on the business interests to his sons, David and Martin. Uh, in addition to their successful beers, interestingly, they also produced mineral waters. Seems to be the area for it. <laughs> so they had Truban Spring waters, which came from a source above the village. Um, they also registered the brewery as a private company in 1906. As well as that, they had mining interests. Um, such a Welsh story, but while sinking a well at the brewery to try and find some more water, they actually struck a two-foot thick seam of coal. Um, that was just 12 yards below the surface. They thought, hmm, could get a bit more money here as well, but actually they thought better of it, um, as if they did work that seam, it would have interfered with the brewery buildings, probably causing more trouble than it was worth. Mm. Um Another family joined in the running of the brewery when David John's daughter, Mary Ann, married John Lewis. Not the, the John Lewis you think you know. <laughs> he was the manager of another ironworks, the Wern Ironworks. Uh, unfortunately, he was a compulsive gambler and was prepared to risk everything in the turn of a card or a throw of a dice. So he's reputed to have lost at Inworks on a bet. So um, his wife kind of kept her down with him and she controlled the shares and he didn't have much say in it and unfortunately in the 1920s the strain became too much and he actually shot himself whilst alone in the brewery office 
Undaunted, his wife Marianne, she was quite a formidable woman, she carried on with the business. And her visits made a deep impression. She used to carry a massive stick. And if she was unhappy with anything or anything going on in the brewery, she would hit people with said stick. Um, and you can still see that stick in the brewery today. It's hang on the wall. <laughs> um, <laughs> what a relic. I was just what about to say, is this going to be one of those stories of um, where a widow sort of comes into her own in terms of, you know, we've, we've done all that through the wine industry and through champagne. All the really successful mm. houses were women who had lost their husband and then decided to take over the business. But it sounds like um, <laughs> perhaps she wasn't introducing, you know, workers' rights and things like that as we've seen in France. No. <laughs> she, she was going around not. smacking people with a stick. <laughs> she was just an angry little widow. Okay. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it wasn't the best time for the brewery, but uh, their close connections with the tin plate industry were soon to alter that. Um, so many brewers were sceptical that drinkers would ever accept beer in a can. Um, customers expected beer to be on draft from a cask or in a glass bottle. Advocates of the can pointed out that ale had been enjoyed in pewter mugs for centuries, so it was worth a try, they were convinced. Um, but much more of a concern were the serious technical problems. Um, so beer needs a container that would withstand a pressure in excess of 80 pounds per square inch. Um, food cans, which, as you said, had been established way before this, they only needed to withstand 25 to 35 pounds. Um, so that was an issue. There was also the trouble of flavour contamination. So the beer would react with a bare tin plate, which would leave a tinny taste. But if they tried coating it with traditional brewer's pitch that they used in casks, that was no good either. <clears throat> a magazine at the time said that samples of linings of the can were found to absorb all of the hop flavour out of the beer and left it tasting like ditch water. Mm. Not nice. Um, and then, of course, it was the bottom line. Cans cost more than glass bottles. Um, breweries had already heavily invested in bottling plants and large stocks of returnable glass bottles, so they weren't really going to be enthusiastic about it. They were quite suspicious. Um, Sanders Watney of the London Brewers, Watney, Coombe and Reed, said in an article, I am not convinced that there would be any demand in this country for beer in cans. I hope that's on his grave. <laughs> um, <laughs> Should we go and dance? Should we find it and dance on it? <laughs> with a can. With a can. <laughs> um, so yeah, with brewers and drinkers seemingly indifferent, um, the impetus for change had to come from elsewhere. So that came from the hard-pressed tin plate manufacturers of South Wales. Um, so they were helped by having two brewers in the area. There was the Vailinvall Brewery, but also Buckley's Brewery. Um, so they were very popular in Wales for a very long time. And more recently, they were bought out by S.A. Brains, Brains Brewery. They still mm -hmm. operate under that name. Um, well, it was reported by the Welsh Morning newspaper that Buckley's Brewery were starting to investigate canned beer in October 1935. Um, Vailin Voyle, with family interest in the tin plate industry, obviously were very keen, if not keener. Uh, and it was recorded, the historic moment was on the 3rd of December 1935, 
Um, Llanelli in County Guardian run a, a headline, Canned Beer Arrives, New Hope for Tin Plate Industry. Papers report said that the first can of beer was turned out without a hitch in the presence of Chairman Martin John, brewer Sidney John and representatives of other brewing and trade interests. So the cans at the time, they're not like the cans we know now with like the, the flat top and the ring pull, they were conical cans. Um, so it was like a regular can up to the neck and then it comes into a cone and then they had what looks like a normal beer lid now that you pop off. So they almost look like little mini oil cans. They're quite cute. Mm -hmm. um, so these conical cans were filled on an adapted bottling machinery and they were sealed with a standard bottle top that's known as a crown cork. You know the ones, the crown. Yeah. Um, they were 10 ounce cans of pale ale, which is the equivalent of half a pint. Uh, they were then packed in cardboard containers holding two dozen cans ready for dispatch. Newspaper reported, One of the most impressive features of the process was its simplicity and speed. Girls, who have in the past handled many thousands of bottles, adapted themselves to new conditions with apparent ease. Wow, um, even those girls smart could do girls. It. Wow. girls. Good job, girls. Um, the brewery manager, Willie Reese. He explained that they'd been experimenting with canned beer for a couple of months. He said, we were particularly struck with the success which followed its inception in America at the beginning of the year. Uh, we realised its potential and the stimulus which its universal adoption in this country would give to the tin plate trade and especially local industry. We decided to put the novel idea into practical use ourselves. Around January of the same year, the kind of nailed it in America mm -hmm. and then by October they were doing it in Wales so however the head brewer you... yep carry on sorry I just want to ask a question before you move on to the US if you're about to mm. um, one was just so do, do you know if they took direct inspiration from what was going on in the US or was it just kind mm -hmm. of like because the conditions were right in many countries they were mm -hmm. obviously going to like you know be developed independently anyway and second question is have you been um to this brewery or is it on the spreadsheet it is a hundred percent on the spreadsheet okay. i was planning on i was planning on going there to do this research but as i mentioned at the start i've been quite poorly so i didn't get yeah. down there so i think it we sh you're planning on coming down soon i think we should go mm. yeah okay good why not uh, and in answer to your first question with regards to whether it's a direct kind of inspiration, um, the head brewer claimed that they'd actually gone one or two steps better than America mm -hmm. um, because they claimed that they'd managed to find a vessel and, and put this vessel together that holds like the perfect beer because their beer in America was being pasteurized. So I'll, I'll come to that. But basically... Okay. The guys internationally claimed that America had to kind of adapt their beer for their vessel, whereas here they'd managed to nail it because, you know, I mentioned how certain cask um, covers and stuff that they'd use in the cans was absorbing the hops and making it taste like ditch water. It would mm -hmm. react badly. Um, they'd they developed another layer. So they were putting wax into the cans. Yeah. And that layer of wax was allowing it to just be preserved as and when you need it which was perfect over here in these conditions and this climate in warmer conditions when they did try that the wax would melt and it would not taste very good sure um so yeah they um I've, actually i've got a quote to what he said so he said um 
We found a can to hold the perfect beer. The American's beer is being pasteurised and the result is that the natural ingredients are being destroyed. Ours is not. This will not be the case with our beer. The difficulties of the London Metalbox Company have been to find a line in to preserve beer in its best state. After considerable research work, they have succeeded in doing so and the Americans have not. So, yeah. And the London Metalbox Company, of... I believe, is uh, my neighbourhood. It is indeed. So you can say that your neighbourhood cracked it and then the Welsh are like, yeah, okay, we'll do the heavy lifting now. Mm. <laughs> it's our perfect collaboration. It is indeed. Cans. Um, so the brewery was so proud of its achievement that every single employee of the brewery and the tin plate works was given a can to mark the occasion. Um and I love this bit. So Buckley's, they were raging that they kind of lost the race. Um, and in that newspaper where I said about the canned beer has arrived, um, they actually paid quite a lot to have a large advert in said newspaper to, to proclaim the following. The canning of beer was accomplished at Buckley's Brewery bottling stores on the 3rd of December and samples may be seen at the brewery and at displays in the town. However, until the directors are satisfied that canned beer has the same estimable qualities as the bottled product, the process will be in the nature of an experiment, and for the time being, the canning process will be conducted experimentally with persistence and caution. But actually, it wasn't until many years later that they actually produced a can for public sale. So, mm. bitter. <laughs> um... As I mentioned, uh, the brewery, uh, Vinim Vol, who did manage to do it successfully and gave a can to each of their employees. Those cans are now understandably collector's items, very sought after. Mm -hmm. You can view some of them in, um, in Swansea Museum. There's a few down there. Um, but more recently, 2018 actually, not that recent anymore, um, three of them were sold at auction. Would you like to hazard a guess as to how much? I don't know if the beer was inside, but um, three cans. Yeah. Um, I mean, it can't be that much. I mean, it's, it's, it's a good piece of history, but also mm. it's, you know, it's a small specialist license. I'm going to say 10 grand. Oh, actually, well, you'd get them for a steal. 1,300 quid, 1,300 pounds. Oh, okay. That is a lot cheaper mm. than I thought. Yeah. But the nice part of that story is that the purchaser was actually um, third generation from the owners of the brewery. So still in the family, oh, which is quite nice. nice. Yeah. I feel like I'd have outbid them. <laughs> You'd have been that guy. <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, look, I know, I know this is your family, but I want it. <laughs> Mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so I will talk about America quickly, because I've mentioned it a few times and you have. Mm -hmm. um, so it was actually in 1909 that the first attempts to can beer were made. Oh. Um, it was by the American Can Company. Uh, so they'd obviously been canning food for a long time and they were quite keen to start doing it with beer. Um, but obviously they were unsuccessful in 1909. They kept exploding. <laughs> um, and they had to wait until the end of prohibition in the US before they could try again. Uh, finally, in 1933, after lots of research, 
they developed a can that was pressurised and had a special coating to prevent the chemical reaction and make it explode. Um, and so it was actually the canning company that pushed for the beer this way around. It, it wasn't so much the brewery were looking to do it, it was the can company. Um, they approached a brewery company in New Jersey, Gottfried Kruger Brewing Company. Um, it was a big risk and a hard sell. So what they actually did was they offered the brewery to install the equipment for, for free. And they said, if it doesn't work, you won't pay a penny. You'll only have to pay us if it's successful. Um, so the brewery went for it. They did an initial test run of 2,000 cans, which they filled with 3.2% of the product. It was labelled Kruger's Special Beer. Uh, they provided it to brewery employees and friends of the brewery for evaluation. Um, and I think it was 91% of people came back and said, yeah, it's great. Really well respond, respond to that. So um, they went for it and they decided to release canned versions of their full strength Kruger's Cream Ale and Kruger's Finest Beer brands. Um, they did that on the 24th of January, 1935. Now, you said the first ones was 1935 in Richmond, Virginia, but this That's brewery is based I... in New Jersey. Uh-huh, okay. Mm. Yeah, I did. Oh, I they w- glossed over that because I wanted to get mm. the background before we got to your bit, so I wasn't sure. I didn't look into yeah. it. Well, you were right, but it was made in New Jersey, mm-hmm. and it was canned. But they made an executive decision to ship it to Richmond, Virginia, which is the furthest point of their distribution area, because they thought if this goes tits up. We're not going to damage our reputation oh, in our core I market. I see. That's very... <laughs> it sounds like they made a lot of really very clever, clever decisions around this. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, but the response was overwhelming. Within three months, over 80% of distributors were handling uh, Kruger's canned beer. Mm-hmm. And they ate into the market share across national brewers. They just lapped it up. Um, but, you know... When you think by October they were doing it in the UK, that's how quickly it spread. Mm. Um, but in the US, comp- uh, competitors had followed suit, and by the end of 1935, over 200 million cans had been produced and sold. Mm-hmm. So it did spread very quickly. Um, and it was a dream because, like as I mentioned, a lot of these breweries had invested in you know the the bottling facilities and the glass returnable bottles was such an infrastructure it was quite hard to convince consumers but it was there were so many benefits that it was quite easy to sell them into it it was you know they were able to get twice as many cans in the same space as your icebox as you would a bottle yeah and um, you don't have to pay a bottle deposit or hassle with returns um so yeah it was an immediate success um World War II did briefly halt the canning operations for several years to redirect materials elsewhere for the war effort. But um, once resumed, they started to have another milestone happening. Aluminium cans were developed in 1958 and are still used to this day. Mm. Mm -mm. Yeah, amazing how quick it spread. Like from January to October, it had gone like crazy across the US, reached the UK. It was just like one mad, like in, in a couple of the articles I I read about it, people were referring it, uh, to it as like the space race. There's quite lots of, um, quite a lot of debate around it even now. Um, when I was reading about the Vail in Vol Brewery, there's quite a few naysayers who were like, well, isn't it ironic that 
its breweries and tinworks have collaborated to create something that has essentially caused the death of the pub. Um, I wouldn't agree with that. (laughs) I didn't think I'd agree with that because, you know, lots of pubs now serve craft beers in cans and you see that it's not just about taps in cans. But then, rightly so, a a brewer from a microbrewery said, well, it gives us the chance to compete against the big brewers now. You can produce in small batches. Um, yeah, there's loads of reasons, you know, mm. why it's good. And I think, I mean, we haven't got we haven't got time for it on this episode, but you know, the so-called death of the pub. I think there are much yeah. more broad economic issues behind that than cans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cans are brilliant. And- I won't hear a word against them. <laughs> no. And before I sign off, I'm just going to say that it's interesting how. It's almost come full circle with regards to the packaging. Um, how <clears throat> they were saying, like these articles I was reading, they were only written about six, seven, eight years ago. And it was almost anecdotal then to to us six, seven, eight years ago. We were saying, oh, it was packaged in cans and then put into cardboard. Whereas now that's coming back. And God forbid, when it happens, deposit return schemes are coming back as well. So mm. we're going full circle back to the 1800s. <laughs> We well, always do. So. We always do. I was yeah. half expecting Mesopotamia to pop up some point in my research, but uh, <laughs> um, so cans. Um, mm-hmm. I think you know. First of all, kind of just you talking about like the cone shape. Um, I think is funny because one of the most unchanged thing about cans, sort of history, is that it is a cylinder. I mean, I know it was still a cylinder with like, yeah. a cone top. Um, and you know that that makes sense for lots of reasons physics um but the thing i think that really defines the evolution of cans is how they're opened because that's the thing that kind of kept innovating you know everyone was pretty satisfied with the fact that it should be aluminium in a cylinder but it's the opening mechanisms which i think really kind of take us through the 20th century so i've got some stuff on that um early metal drink cans that didn't have any tabs you would just pierce them with something called a church key um so it's mm-hmm. like a bottle opener that we'd recognize with a sharp point on the end i mean you can still find them even though there are very few cans that need that anymore um and you would do two triangular holes in the lid one was so you could drink from it and the second one was so that it could admit air so that it gives you mm-hmm. you know that nice kind of continuous stream and satisfying yeah drink. Uh, it does need a vent. So the church key is similar to the keys. Like the, I don't know if they still use them on the um, the corned beef tins. Yes. Keys on the side. Well, those I don't those know ones if they you, still use. You but those were designed around. to twist. Yeah, those yeah. twisted around and would lift off like half of the can. These ones would punch mm. a hole in the top, so they were more like a sort of claw. Yeah. Um, <laughs> claw. Um, so as early as 1922, inventors were applying for patents on cans with tab tops, but they didn't really have the technology to um, allow it to be practical. Um, so they were like, they knew they needed it, but they just didn't know how it was going to happen. <laughs> and so often mm. you find that with patents, people are like, I've got an idea, but I don't know how I'm going to do it. Um, so in 1959, we've got Irma Frey's who devised a can opening method that would come to really kind of dominate and that was the pull tab. So it 
Remove the need for any kind of separate opening tool like the church key by attaching the aluminium pull ring lever with a rivet to a pre-scored wedge shaped tab section of the can. I'm trying to describe it like no one's ever seen a can before, but like you all know what I'm talking about. Um, so the, the ring was riveted to the center of the top, which made this quite, quite elongated um, opening. And it was large enough that one hole could serve to let the drink flow out and the air flow in. So you didn't need the two holes. It was, it was big enough. Um, so the story behind this apparently is that um, Mr. Fraze was on a family picnic and he'd forgotten to bring a can opener and was forced to use a car bumper to open a can of beer. And he was like, there must be an what? easier way. Yeah. Why that was his go-to, I don't know. He must have literally had no other tools around. And he was like, well, that must there must be an easier way to do that. And he stayed up all night until he came up with the pull tab. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I like that. I want to know how he used the car bumper. Yeah, and I like that. Like this is supposed to be the story that inspired him. And normally, with inspirational stories, like you see something in nature and you think, "Oh, that could be applied somewhere else." Mm -hmm. But his inspirational story is: I used a car bumper to open it, and then I came up with the pull tab. And you're like, "There's something missing in the middle of There's that a story." Gap that, yeah. <laughs> So these um maybe he damaged his car bumper and it kind of peeled back. <laughs> he went ah. I don't know. We're trying to fill in the gaps here, but we've got no information on that. Um so they were called pop tops uh, mostly. Uh mm -hmm. in the 1970s the pull tab was very popular, but there was a problem. Uh the problem is very human made um and sadly predictable is that people would just discard the pull tabs on the ground even though the cans have mm -hmm. do not litter written on them people like that doesn't apply to me and lots of people were getting mm -hmm. injured from them because like they they stick up sharp metal and particularly people were drinking on the beach for example where people are walking around with bare feet and um so it, it became kind of a real injury risk that you would step on some mm. sharp metal pull tabs um so the problem was first addressed with the invention of the push tab which was used primarily in Coors beer in the mid-1970s and that was a raised circular scored area in place of the pull tab it didn't need a ring to pull it up instead what you did was you pushed down with a finger um, and the small um, uh, there was a small kind of unscored section of it so it wasn't like a complete ring um, that would prevent it from detaching and falling into the can after you'd pushed it in. But even though sort of that was a practical solution to the no littering and it opened the can, it didn't get super popular because um, lots of people's fingers would be cut on the sharp edges as they pushed it in, which you can imagine. Yeah. It was a bit of a safety yeah. hazard, you know, like people pushing it in and like, oh, if you don't pay attention, especially when you've been drinking, you're going to cut your finger open. Um, <laughs> So these push tabs, they were they were introduced, they people tried them. They went into I've got a note here, nineteen seventy seven in Australia where they were called pop tops. Um but what we want to get is the um to the ones that stay on. That story actually goes back before the push tabs. Nineteen fifty eight, there's an American inventor called Anthony Bahada who was given the patent for lid closure for can containers, which is so generic, you kind of can't believe that he was given that patent. Um, 
So he had the, the first design to keep the opening tab connected to the lid of the can, which prevented it from, from falling in. That expired in 1975, uh, but it was cited in the mechanism that was then used by people like um, Crown Cork and Seal, Broken Hill Proprietary, United States Steel Corporation. And about a month after Bahada's patent expired, which I still think is dubious, um, Daniel F. Kudzik, who was an engineer with Reynolds Metals, uh, filed a design patent application for end enclosure for a container. <laughs> this later became known God. as Staytab. And when the Staytab launched in 1975 on Falls City Beer, um, and then lots of other drinks, uh, they, they did some testing and people were like, this is a much better idea this is a much better suggestion so the, the one we're familiar with now and it's still kind of has come in various designs and evolutions of it but the one where you um, pull on the tab and you open it and it all stays on uh, that really was from mm -hmm. the, the mid 1970s um, I've got you'd the think that if these people are creative enough to make something like this they'd be creative enough to think of better names <laughs> <laughs> no I wouldn't no, I know plenty of engineers, <laughs> and I absolutely would not. <laughs> okay, um, I've got I've, I've got here the word fulcrums written down in capital letters and an exclamation mark. I think okay. I just got a bit excited about how how the tab worked in terms of fulcrums. Okay. This is I mean I think it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Right, so the stay tab. The key thing about why it works is because it begins by being a second class lever and then it becomes a first-class lever during the point of opening. Let me explain. Ah, yeah. So I think I know what you mean. So a second-class lever is one where, if you were looking at it, it would have the lever, then the load, and then the fulcrum. So that's like a wheelbarrow. So you pick up the handles, the load is between you and the fulcrum, which is where the wheel is, that kind of, you know, that, that central point. So it starts like that, um, mm -hmm. and then, once so you pull up the tab and the fulcrum is at the end which is where you're pushing the tab in and the yeah. load is in the middle because when you open the tab what it does is it pulls the central vent up so uh, that kind of like yes. central bit it pulls it up that becomes the vent and it releases the pressure and at that point it becomes mm. a first class lever which is where it goes lever fulcrum load so now you're using the vent as the fulcrum and it pushes the load which is the tab down. The Damn. reason it has to do that is because if you were going straight to first class and you were trying to push the tab down without having released the pressure, you'd be pushing against the pressure of the can and that would be near impossible. Your thumb would just go straight through with the, the, the force. No, you wouldn't be able to do it. If there wasn't if there wasn't the lever system where the, where the fulcrum pushed up the vent and released pressure, the can would be too pressurised for you to be able to open it. Gotcha. <laughs> fulcrums. <I> do. <laughs> oh, if anyone likes fulcrums, they're Full gonna love that bit. Crumbs. Mm -hmm. um, also, uh, just in terms of the pressure, so you know how when you get food cans like a tin of beans, it's got ridges yes. along the side. That's to make mm -hmm. it stronger. The ridges make it stronger. But drinks cans don't need those because they're pressurized from the inside. They're actually when they're packaged, they're two times atmospheric pressure. Um, and that's created mm -hmm. either by the CO2 in, you know, like beer or fizzy drinks, for example, or nitrogen if it's, you know, an orange juice. 
Um, the cans can actually tolerate up to six atmospheres in pressure. So, you know, when you've got an empty can, it's really easy to crush because there's no pressure and it's really thin. But yeah. when it's full, you can't do it. And that's because of the amount of uh, pressure pushing out at you. So that's what makes them strong. And that's why you don't need to reinforce the shape in any way. I did see um, this week somebody at Glastonbury had left like a can of Coke or something in their tent. Mm -hmm. And it was so sunny and hot that... Um, it exploded in their tent. Mm -hmm. So they just got back to their tent covered in coke. Right. <laughs> and not the kind of coke yeah. that they want. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing, just while we're on the, the top of the can, um, that's changed a fair bit is that since the 1960s, the, um, the diameter of the ends has reduced by six millimetres. So not the mm. not the can itself, that's still holding the same amount, but just the ends have been slowly pinched in. And you might think, well, so what? Like, what, what effect does that have? And it's actually saving 90 million kilograms of aluminium a year. Mm -hmm. That difference between the 1960s and now just by that small reduction yeah. because of just like the enormous volume. So these kinds of design adjustments are really important for... Um, Kind of new, oh, yeah. the, um, you'll probably notice it now that I've said it but if you buy a bottle of water in Europe you'll notice that the the opening at the top where you unscrew the lid is a lot smaller than the ones here in the UK and I think that's to do with legalization in Europe as to mm -hmm. the weight and how much plastic that they're allowed to use in their packaging because mm -hmm. um, yeah it's stuff like that I do on a, not a daily basis, but quite a lot in work is reducing the amount of packaging we use, mm -hmm. and yeah. So if you want to, lots of stuff like that. You want to save the environment. Think about tightening your holes. Exactly, I'm forever doing it. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> cans becoming bottles again. By the way, uh, there's there was sort of a movement in well from 2004, Anheuser Busch, for example. Uh, adopted aluminium bottles for use with Budweiser and Bud Light. Um, so they were trying to go for that. We know cans are better, but some people still like the feel of bottles and they've gone for this hybrid thing. Mm. I don't think it's really taken off. I haven't seen that many of them around. And I think it was responding mm -hmm. to people who thought that cans weren't as good. And I don't feel like that stigma is really sticking. Mm -hmm. uh, have you encountered the Beer Can Museum? No. So, this... I have not. This is my top recommendation following this episode, is go and find the Beer Can Museum. So, you know how I love crap websites. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, when you've got, like, either small breweries or small museums whose website is made still, yeah. like, off the back of 1990s GeoCities by someone in their spare time, this is one of those. Yeah. Um, it makes absolutely no sense, the website. It's like, it's got a weird <laughs> menu of things. It's got a continuous stream of words, some random photos that have been uploaded. It looks like no website I've seen in years. Um, so there's the, the sort of the reviews, the official reviews, like uh, external ones I've read of this museum, were like, well, it's not a museum. Um, it's some guy with a big collection of beer cans who's put it in his <laughs> basement, like it's the basement of his home. But he's had the gall to yeah. call it the Beer Can Museum. 
Um, <laughs> um, and but what's more interesting are the reviews that are that are written of people who visited. <laughs> um, I'm trying to find. I'm trying to remember where it actually is. It's in the US, but like even even now I'm like I'm looking at the website. I'm like, where is it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm on I'm on his website right now and I still don't know where where this beer can museum is like oh I'll just look quickly no I've got no idea Boston I think it's in Boston yes south of Boston yeah. to be specific okay. south of Boston right here are some reviews from his his website this is from Perry Sable of New Jersey this website reminds me of my great aunt Sylvia a stogie smoking old English 800 swilling broad who climbed Mount Everest on her 80th birthday, a zesty fun filled frolic through the seedy underside of the world of beer. Wow. I, I can't this even is... tell if that's a compliment or not. No idea. This is a review from Lars Malachy of Normal, Illinois. <laughs> As Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon did for the Chinese action film, ETBCM, that's that's his name, um, sets a new high water mark for excellence in the realm of beer can collecting. Unlike anything before it, elements of this fine museum are destined to appear in the beer can collections in museums of the future. I doff my cap and quaff a fine ale in toast to this magnificent collection. Wow, Just I like, want to meet all of these people. Where was it going? Um, this is from Mark Backer of the Netherlands. He said, basically it comes down to this. The ETBCM makes recycling cans completely obsolete. Okay. Oh, I get <laughs> in, what you mean. As in, it's so good to store all the cans here, let's not recycle anymore. <laughs> yeah, just send them all to this guy. Yeah. So, I mean, it's so glorious. Like, you just, you have to go and explore it. Um, it uses a variety of um, typography. Um, and it's one big continuous stream of stuff. Um, and yeah, the Beer Can Museum and Beer Can Hall of Fame. And it is some guy's basement south of Boston. The other thing I want to say is like in the menu, it's got things you would be like, sure, this makes sense. Beer cans in literature and film. Publicity, quotes and awards. Uh, Brugeriana images. And then it comes down to Angler's Den, brackets, fish picks. <laughs> it has nothing to do with beer or cans it's just some pictures of fish <laughs> oh gosh it's so good um, <laughs> I spent hours on this before I realised I wasn't going to get any actual information out of it like on the section that says beer cans in literature and film you're like oh, okay there must be some really good information in here and it says things like from Jan Martel's classic castaway tale Life of Pi one day we came upon trash first the water glistened with patches of oil coming up soon after was the domestic and industrial waste mainly plastic refuse in a variety of forms and colours but also pieces of lumber beer cans wine bottles tatters of cloth bits of rope and surroundings all yellow foam like that's it <laughs> It's like that. That's the that's best not, you could do. That's not about beer cans. <laughs> but he's like, oh, I read a book once and it said the word beer cans. I'm going to write that. I'm going to write that up on my website. Oh, Ow. I love it so much. Okay, uh, I've got to stop talking about that. Um, 
Is it on the spreadsheet? It's on the spreadsheet for you. I spent hours looking at this website already. No, I mean, actually go in there. Oh, gosh, yes. Let's go to this, <laughs> this creepy guy's basement. <laughs> That's to look at his cans. <laughs> and his fish. <laughs> and his fish fix. Oh, I've got a few, I've got a few more things. Um, a koozie or a stubby holder, if you're Australian, uh, is the foam mm-hmm. sleeve that's designed to insulate uh, a can. Using a koozie reduces the rate of drink warms in the sun by about 50%. Just so you know what the rate is. Um, there's a company called RCC that specialised in baseball caps before they registered the trademark of koozie in 1980 and then introduced the product two years later. But this is one of those examples where a product has lost its trademark lots of times over the years. Uh, because it's become mm. too much of a regular, you know, everyday word in the English language, like onesie or hula hoop, whatever. Um, which is called genericide as a term, when a brand name uh, loses its uh, trademark because it becomes too generic. Also, have you ever tried those self-heating cans, like ones where you get a coffee or something oh, and then it, no. you push something and it warms up? I don't think I have, you know. So these are um, these are based on kind of exothermic reactions when you press the bottom of the can. So it's manufactured as a triple-walled container, and you've got the container of the beverage in the middle, and then it's surrounded by the heating agent, which is separated from another container of water by a thin breakable membrane. And when you push the bottom of the can, a rod pierces the membrane, and it allows the water and the heating agent to mix. And then that releases heat and warms the beverage in the middle that it's surrounding. And that heating agent, most of the time, is quicklime, otherwise known as calcium oxide. Um, and that's because it's it's very readily available, it's inexpensive, it's recognised as a, a safe product. Um, and then when it reacts with the water, it produces calcium hydroxide, but more importantly, it's an exothermic reaction, so it produces heat and warms the beverage. Yes, you get those a lot in food as well. No, I've seen a few. I've seen a few coffee cans of these, but it was. It's mostly kind of used for things like expedition, exploring expeditions, military purposes, and they use it for food as well. So you see, like a lot of self-eating rice and noodles and stuff. It's the same principle. It's just having that separating those two agents and then being able to break the membrane. But yeah, quicklime is the thing they mostly use for it. Mentioned. things tasting tinny and uh beer and acids and stuff before that you know it did the it did used to make beer taste tinny but not since they introduced plastic lining like bpa uh i didn't go too much into Mm. the bpa controversies because it feels like it's ongoing there have been tests on it some people have said bpa leaches into things plastics do some other people have said it's not i think the last official ruling on it was about um, 10 years ago and the ruling was that it's safe that's the latest anyway but um, back in the day yeah beer was acidic enough to react with metal when it wasn't lined um, and that led me onto a little sidebar which is obviously we, we measure acidity and alkali in pH do you know what it stands for? do you know, do you know what the P means? no I'm not going to say what the first thing that came to my head because it was just vile <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so the answer is we actually don't know. 
we don't know what the what, I didn't embarrass myself what then. The is exactly. Um, so the story behind that is in 1909. There's this Danish chemist. I need not have said his, his Danish. His name is Soren Sorensen, um, and he introduced <laughs> the concept of pH at the Carlsberg Laboratory. So the pH scale, hmm. wild, wildly, was um, created actually for beer to understand beer in Carlsberg. So he, he used the notation PH, and originally the H was a subscript to a lowercase p. Now we see sort of um, lowercase p, capital H, um, which that, and that was revised in 1924. So Sorensen did not explain why he used the letter P, and the exact meaning of that is still disputed. Uh, so he described a way of measuring pH using potential differences. It represents the negative power of 10 in the concentration of hydrogen ions. It, the P could stand for uh, puissance in French, it could be potence in German, it could be potence in Danish. They all mean power, or it could mean potential. So all of those are starting with a P from French, German and Danish, which were languages that Sorensen published in. The Carlsberg Laboratory was French-speaking, German was the dominant language of scientific publishing, though, and Sorensen was Danish. <laughs> so we're not we're not sure. He also used the letter Q in the same way elsewhere in the paper. Um, so he might have just been labelling them arbitrarily. Uh, we don't know. Um, there are some literature sources you read which say that pH is Latin and stands for pondus hydrogenii, which means quantity of hydrogen, or potentia hydrogenii. Um, what was power of hydrogen but Sorensen doesn't mention that anywhere and it sounds very much like some of the people who use Latin regularly made that up um, aside from kind of that original version there's an electronic method as well for measuring pH which is invented by Arnold Orville Beckman who was a professor at the California Institute of Tech in 1934 and that was actually in response to a request from um, the citrus growers Sunkist who we talked about in our orange oh. episode about basically they sort of mm -hmm. invented orange juice um yeah <laughs> because that's quite an interesting history but yeah they wanted a quicker method to test the ph of lemons actually not oranges that they were picking in their nearby orchards so both the historic ph scale and also the modern electronic method uh, of ph scale both came from the drinks industries mm. um, good pub knowledge that yes I thought I'd uh, get us towards the end with, I haven't done any etymology for can, normally start with etymology, but I've left it here. Yeah. Uh, so, in the, obviously it has many senses, in the sense of it being this small cylindrical metal vessel. Um, it goes back as far as Old English for, for can, can, C-A-N-N-E, uh, also kind of things like Proto-Germanic, you know, Old Saxon, Middle Dutch, etc., all similar uses that would have come from containers, tankards, mugs. Uh, so it, it does come directly from drinks containers all the way back into uh, Middle English. Uh, there's some suggestions as well that it comes from the Latin canna, which is container or vessel, could do. There's also a version of Latin canna, which means uh, reed or reed pipe or small boat. So some people think that it started out as like a reed boat meaning and then turned into something containery, but it, I, I don't know, it's a bit difficult to put that <laughs> one together. 
In the modern sense, it seems to come from 1867 um, as the can that we would know it then. Uh, the There's a slang meaning of it being toilet, um, which comes from 1900, uh, which was originally piss can. <laughs> so they did they did call it piss so can, when, and then they when did it move from piss pot to piss can? I don't know. I suppose it would have been with the popularity of cans from from the military. Yeah. I suspect because they were the ones who were using cans first of all for like you know to preserve their food as they went on conquest, and I can imagine that they would have you know deemed any toilet they found as a piss can they probably began by pissing into cans <laughs> i i imagine it came some Maybe. something along those lines i think it came from military sound and then as people sort of thought mm, piss is a bit unpleasant but we can still call it can that's when it, it turned into that through <laughs> the 20th century yeah. and as an evolution of that in 1910 that's when we find the first uh, mention of can meaning buttocks so we think it came I up. didn't even know it meant buttocks. You never heard someone say nice can? Nice cans? That's your boob, I thought, you cans. No, can, cans is bum. Cans? Yeah. No, cans are boobs. I you think cans. I think your your interpretation of cans as boobs has probably evolved from the buttocks. Um, but it, cer it certainly was bum in 1910, and that, that came off the back of, the back of um, it being a, to a slang for toilet. <laughs> Yeah. God, I never knew it was bum. I always thought it was boobs. Yeah. Yeah. There's certainly there's a lot of um there's still a lot of mention of that in American slang, not so much in British. Mm. Um I think you're getting your cans and your jugs confused. <laughs> Just thinking what about my cans now. What about the can can? <laughs> can you can can? Can you can can? Because we can can can. I can. I was I was just curious as to whether it had any relation to it at all, but it doesn't. Um, <laughs> but now I'm oh, going to sell you anyway. Boo. So Can Can, because you don't know, it's a very high energy dance that became musical, uh, uh, popular dance in the 1840s. Um, continues in French cabaret to this day. It was originally danced by couples, uh, even though we now associate it with it being a chorus line of mostly female dancers. Um, and kind of the main things are it's all about skirts and high kicks and splits and cartwheels and things like that it 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 comes it's nothing to do with cans it comes from french slang at the turn of the 19th century which meant uh, malicious gossip or scandal oh. um yeah and that's possibly because of um where it comes out of as well so it, it evolved from this final figure in the quadrille which was a social dance um for four or more couples and um, the Cancan -can steps were probably inspired by a particular entertainer in the 1820s called Charles Mazurier, who was well known for his acrobatics, uh, his jump splits, and uh, all those sorts of things that became popular. So the dance was considered quite scandalous. Um, there were attempts to suppress it, although I don't believe, even though people were seemingly arrested for it, it doesn't seem to have been made a crime in law. Um, <laughs> But this might have been partly because in the 19th century, women who were dancing this would have worn pantalettes. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever worn a pantalette, uh, Leary, but... Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm knowingly worn they, a pantalette. <laughs> they cover the legs, but they've they've got an open crotch. <laughs> oh. So it's, e it's quite easy. I'm wearing some now. It's quite easy for you to do a wee-wee uh, in them. But it means that if you're doing a high kick on stage, 
well, it's quite revealing. It's more revealing. Everyone's going to see your can. You know when you see, you know, people doing the can-can, everyone's like, woo, because they've lifted up their skirt, but you can still see, like, everything's still covered. Mm. So the original version, it... you would have seen a bit more. Okay. Is, All right. Is the point. Um, okay. By the 1890s, so this is when, you know, like, everyone's going to Paris because it's insane party town. By the 1890s, people were um, full-time dancers. They could make a living out of it. And you had these stars like Jane Avril and Le Goulou, um, who were highly paid at the Moulin Rouge uh, and other places. I think what people don't realise is actually there were a lot of male can-can dancers as well. There were male troops. There was uh, the the very um, famous one who was the partner of um, Le Goulou was Valentin de Desauce, which means Valentin the Boneless which sounds very Viking, okay. uh, but it's probably because he was very flexible, I imagine. Um, and then, you know the Can Can tune? The most famous Can Can tune? <laughs> yeah, I wish you weren't wearing pantalettes right now. Um, <laughs> uh, sorry. So do you, know, do you know what that tune is? Um, no. So it's, it's from a, a French composer called Jacques Offenbach, um, and it's from his opera Orpheus in the Underworld. Opera, I should say, short. Orpheus in the Underworld from 1858. And that's kind of the most famous tune now. It, the, that piece within the opera is called Gallop Infernal. Because actually, originally, it was for the dance, the gallop, not um, which is a precursor of the can-can. So the gallop is a different dance, but it was very widely performed as the final dance of the evening. So it's like this high energy, kind of big send off, you dance the gallop and then everyone went home. So it was like the 19th century version of Closing Time by Semisonic, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing to do with uh, beer or cans, but I thought you'd want to know that. Yes, I will. I'm, I'm going to do an original can-can for you when I come to London next. Thank you. I'm sure it will be original. Um, anything else before we sign off? No, I need to get these pantalettes off. <laughs> and so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to can-can our cans out of here. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Come on. Also, I want to shout full crumbs before we go. Full crumbs. <laughs> I've already got that bit about you using your mouth for whatever for the end. Wherever I may roam, or land or sea or home, you can always hear me sing in this song, show me the way to go And today's episode was sponsored by Canned Laughter. I could just do it with my mouth.